a short chapter. Actually, what I'm going to do today is I'm not going to teach this chapter per se. I'm going to refer to it. Um, I'm going to leave it to Matt if he chooses to unpack it more next week or not than whatever he decides to do. But I want to give today um, an introduction to this book and also what I feel is uh, what the Lord might want to highlight for us as we go through. So let's read chapter one together to get a heart of where we are. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So these are the exiles who now have been now in Jerusalem, who went uh, under the ministry of Zerubbabel initially, and then Ezra, which we've already studied. They've come back now to Susa, to Nehemiah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And you might underword the word, underline the word shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, this is amazing. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for minutes. No, for hours, no, for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, identifying with them in their sin. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, speaking of the king. Now I was cupbearer, to the king. And there he introduces himself, or whoever is writing this, introduces Nehemiah for the first time. Then he introduces him as the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes in Babylon. Historically, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, not two. In fact, Jesus and his disciples would have read from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they would have written it, and they would have read it as one book, and they would have read it in Greek. It's probably true that Jesus was fluent in four languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and 
Latin, which was the language of the Romans of that day. But they were reading out of the Septuagint, which was the Greek compilation of all of the Old Testament writings at that time. <clears throat> also, we want to know historically to keep in mind, and I'm going to give a little bit of history to begin of introduction because we want to know the context, but then we're going to get into the meat of the matter here in a moment. From the time of the ending of Ezra to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah is about 13 years. So Ezra has been on the scene. Now, 13 years later, Nehemiah will come on the scene. But the time from the first exiles, listen to this, returning to Jerusalem under Cyrus, when Zerubbabel came back with the first group of exiles. Now, this is the third wave now that will come back with Nehemiah. It's an almost a hundred year period. From the very first group of exiles now to the time of Nehemiah and the third group of exiles is almost 100 years. It's 538 BC when the first came back. Now we are in the year 444 BC under Nehemiah. There's a timeline I put up here that you can look at to get an idea of the context here of the timeline and the time frame. You can see the various kings that were ruling Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. The dates, the conqueror of Persia over Bab of the Babylonian Empire. I said that he was a Babylonian. It was a Persian. Uh, Artaxerxes was Persian, not Babylonian. And then the uh, Cyrus returning or letting them return in 538. Haggai when he prophesied, Malachi, and so on. The one I want to zoom in on most though is Esther. And we talked about this when we were looking at Ezra, that Esther became queen in 479 BC. She was married to Xerxes, who was the father of Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes is the king now ruling in Persia who sends Nehemiah back. Esther was married to his father, Xerxes. And so we've concluded very possibly, knowing that Artaxerxes was Esther's stepson, that she had influenced him. And he was the one who allowed Ezra to return. And he was the one who allowed Nehemiah to return. So Esther plays a key role in the providence of God, preserving the seed that was to then, from which would come the Messiah. And that was what was at risk here. And Matt talked about this when he was teaching in Ezra, that the danger of the intermingling was not a national issue of, uh, of nationalities, of marrying different ethnicities. It was an issue of spiritual purity. And that seed that was promised in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent had to come from that lineage. And that lineage had to be protected. And Esther played a key, key role in the providence of God, protecting that seed and that lineage. There are four minor themes that we can look at as we go through the book of Nehemiah. The first is that the Lord hears prayer. The Lord hears prayer. The second is that the Lord works providentially, especially through powerful rulers, even ungodly rulers, to bring about his greater Purposes. So, brothers and sisters, be at peace. 
God is at work. The Lord protects his people is another theme. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid. And we'll see that through this book. Of course, we know the Lord is merciful and faithful to his promises, despite his people's persistence in sin. All of this is so applicable. Another theme in this, it's clear in chapter 10 especially, is that the worship, worship is at the center of the life of God's people. And it includes the willing, joyful giving of their resources. And that is something we see again and again and again throughout Scripture, but we see it very clearly in the book of Nehemiah, that worship and then liberal, free giving of what we own and have and possess, we give to God with joy. And then lastly, another theme we'll see in the last chapter is that God's people need to be on guard always against their own moral weaknesses. Let's talk for a moment about the man, Nehemiah. He was, we know, the cupbearer to the king. And the ministry or the work of a cupbearer was to keep the king from drinking or eating poison. That was one of the greatest dangers to a king in the ancient world of being poisoned in their food or drink. And so what a cupbearer would do was oftentimes they would either drink or taste the food before the king would to be certain that it was not poisoned. It was a position of great honor. It was not a lowly position. It was one of great honor and one that was not taken lightly by any means. And it was often a young boy or a young man who had unquestionable loyalty and trustworthiness for the king. And it's an interesting note here to notice that Nehemiah, a Jew, was found to be that trustworthy for a Persian king. And again in this, we see the providence of God at work that of all the young men in Babylon, it would be Nehemiah who had such access to the the king and such trust of the king. And I want to just stop for a moment and say to us, brothers and sisters, we cannot overlook the providence of God at work today in our lives, in our families, and in the church on the earth. Small, seemingly insignificant, and sometimes great, but often unseen events or opportunities can be the hand of God. And they are at work orchestrating and bringing about the purposes of God for us. Fulfilling eternal purposes. Insignificant events can be the hand of God fulfilling eternal purposes. And as I was thinking about this week, I thought that this week, I thought that keeps me from envy or jealousy. It keeps me from comparing my state in life, my lot in life with others. Because God is doing in me what he wants to do in me. He's doing for me what he wants to do for me. Listen, he's allowing whatever he chooses to happen in me and to me for good, for his purposes. And so I don't have to compare what I'm going through or where, what someone else has or where someone else has opportunity for it or to do with anyone else because God has me where he wants me. Amen. And regardless of what I'm dealing with, I can trust and I must trust God 
in it. I've got a quote here I want you to read that I think is key by one of the men I was reading this week, Charles Fensham. He wrote this, Thus in the stream of history is the undercurrent of the will of God that steers the history of his people in a given direction, guided by his grace and love for his people. There's this undercurrent of the providence of God at work in our lives. And we see that in the book of Nehemiah. Again, we see Esther's influence on Artaxerxes, possibly. We don't have that in scripture, but we can assume it. But we see these men now and the hand of God on their lives. I think a good faith builder and a good encouragement, a great encouragement for us is to look back on our lives or the life of others that we love and know and to see the hand of God and the providence of God in our lives. Kath and I do this often. We look back and we go, wow, God did this and this and this and we didn't even know it. We were struggling and it was God. We were wondering and it was God. We were questioning it was God. This was good and we knew it was God and yes, it is, it was God. But to look back on your life and see the hand of God through all of the events of your life, some of them tragic. And yet, God has been at work because he is a good God and a loving God and a faithful God. Say amen. amen. Yes, he is. I want to also say it's very likely that Nehemiah, like Daniel, was a eunuch. Often those that were closest to their king, especially because they were young, virile men, were castrated and made eunuchs. And often cupbearers were eunuchs because they were so close to the king and they had access to his harem and the king didn't want to have to worry about them. He would simply make them eunuchs. It's amazing how many eunuchs play a significant role in scripture. In the story of Esther, it was a eunuch who was instrumental in her gaining the king's favor. It was a eunuch who rescued Jeremiah from the well. It was a eunuch who was a court official of the queen of Ethiopia, who was one of the first Gentile believers to follow Christ in Acts 8. But it was Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ who refer to the heart of a eunuch as one who is fully dedicated to the Lord, not by literally becoming a eunuch through castration, but by living a life of celibacy, a life fully given only to the service of God. And they hold that in high regard and in high esteem. Both Paul and Jesus spoke of that heart of being a eunuch. Eunuchs play an important role, important role in Old Testament, and even in New Testament stories. But I think the message for us is to live a life of unequal devotion to God, a heart fully given over. Nehemiah's mission, as was Ezra, was also one of restoration. Ezra was sent by the Lord to bring reform by restoring God's people to the law, to a love of the law, to obedience to the law, and a renewing of a covenant, a covenantal relationship with their God. Restoration through reform. 
There is a distinction that is always necessary for the people of God. Always it's important to our God that there would be a distinction because it characterizes true holiness. The distinction does. So Ezra was instrumental, we know, in protecting the bloodline of the promised seed through his call to them to return to the law. And now we see Nehemiah will do the same in what he is called to do. Nehemiah also was a reformer, but his was through rebuilding and restoring the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And I want to tell you the reason that I have entitled the teaching today an Old Testament apostle is because Nehemiah is going to function now, we're going to see, in an apostolic way. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. That's all it means. Let me ask you, who sent Nehemiah? Was it Artaxerxes or was it God? It was God. Artaxerxes was simply the instrument by whom God used to send Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one who was sent. He was sent of God to a, a place to do what a work of an apostle, a New Testament apostle would also do. In a way, I, I, I praying and thinking about it this week, I thought he is a type of Paul in many ways. He's a foreshadowing of the work that Paul would do, of laying foundations, of building, of rebuilding, of establishing. Paul's was the church. Nehemiah's was the walls of a city, which represent, in many ways, the church. But the walls are an interesting study in Scripture. We know that they were primarily for protection from enemies. And there are numerous examples throughout history that an enemy would not only climb the walls or break through the gates, but they would also look for small cracks or breaks in the walls where they could gain access unknown, usually at night, into the city. These small breaks in scripture are called breaches. Look at Isaiah 58 with me. Actually, don't turn to it. I've got a slide for it. I'm just going to tell you really quickly, Isaiah 58 is a powerful, powerful text. The whole chapter is powerful. The chapter begins by the Lord rebuking them, rebuking the people of Israel for their religious activity apart from a heart of obedience. They were doing all of the right things, but their heart was not in it. They were going to church every week. And they were singing songs every week. And they would attend prayer meetings sometimes. But their heart wasn't really in it. And so God rebukes them in the beginning of this chapter. And then there are a series of ifs. If you will do this, if you will do this, and if you will do this. And then finally, promised blessing from the Lord when his people return to him. Not only with the right action, but with the right heart. Listen to this text in Isaiah 58. Then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And listen, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. 
You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So here's this beautiful promise prophesied by Isaiah using the imagery of the city walls and of the city itself, of what would happen when Israel returns to God with their whole heart. And one of the things that would happen is that they themselves would repair the breaches, those cracks in the walls of the city that gives access to the enemy. When I was a young pastor, 1981, I had a discipleship group in my home. And this guy prophesied to me. And he said to me one word, key word. He said, the Lord is showing me the word for you, breach. And I didn't know what he was saying to me at that time. I first thought I was, oh no, we're not going to have a breach child, are we? I didn't know what it meant. And then a few days later, as I was reading and praying, I went across the text in Isaiah 58, and I felt the Spirit of the Lord say to me, you are called to be a repairer of the breach. That was part of my, my personal ministry, was to bring healing and to build up where there was things that had been torn down, where there was vulnerability. We all have breaches in the walls of our lives. We have areas of our lives, though we are in Christ, and I'm going to talk more about this in depth in a moment. Though we are in Christ, we have areas of access in vulnerability where the enemy can come to us through temptation and other means of attacking us through fear and so on and so on that God wants to have repaired, wants to have healed. That's the work of God in Christ, is to reform and restore and to heal us in these areas of vulnerability. And if I asked you today to sit down and to write down your areas of vulnerability, give me three of them, every one of us could do it. Those are the breaches in your life. And they aren't because you are, you're, you're a bad person or an evil person, it's because you are a human being. And you live in a fallen world. And even though we are saved and even though we're redeemed, we still deal with these. And Paul talks about this in Galatians when he talks about the flesh and the spirit warring against one another. And that's what that is. It's, it's the enemy knowing that we have these areas of access and probing until he finds them and he identifies them and then he comes or he sends his minions or sometimes it's just us in our own weakness, without anything of the devil. Because we are vulnerable in our humanity and we are not yet fully restored, but we are in process. Amen. And that's what Nehemiah represents. He's an apostolic man, in a sense, who came to repair breaches, to repair walls that were, that were torn down and gates into a city that represent access into the church or into human lives in the New Testament. Paul speaks of strongholds, speaking of warfare that comes against us in our lives in areas of vulnerability or areas of strength of the enemy 
against us. Nehemiah very much is a book of warfare, as well as all of the other things that I named earlier. We too are exiles living in a foreign land. We too have been given a mission while we are here. But we are not fighting or working from a place of weakness, but rather one of strength. And that strength is the resurrection life of Christ, which is at work in us and through us. And I want to say as we come to a close to a landing point here in the next 25, 30 minutes, no, it'll be next. <laughs> that new creation life is now our, our, our identity. And you have been in this church, most of you for many years, you have heard us teach and speak on new creation life over and over again. But I don't feel sorry at all reminding us again. We cannot speak of it. We cannot teach on it too often. Because it is really the goal of all of God's redemption in Christ was new creation. And you and I being a new creation in Christ is now our identity. And it was the goal of God's work in Christ for you and for me. We have the revelation of the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes in his creation. Redemption was an act of recreation. It was a second genesis. And that recreative act of being born again, of, of this regenesis, issued forth a spiritual new creation. Jesus was the first fruit, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brothers. I've got some things that I've put on a couple of slides here that I want to read. And I did not write this. And I'm sorry I can't tell you who wrote them. It was in my notes that I've had for years, but I want to read it because I think it's so well said. Whenever a sinner is brought into living union with Christ, the result is that he now stands as a new spiritual creation. Listen now, the Christian is not old Adam patched up with a religious talk. See, this is where the Nehemiah analogy falls short because all Nehemiah was going to do was going to repair walls. God doesn't work to just repair. He starts over. It's a brand new beginning. In other words, it's new walls. It's a new life. The Christian is not the old man with the wallpaper of fresh paint of religious ceremony and religious actions. A Christian is not similar to a dog that's been trained to simply go through the motions and jump through hoops. But he is a new creation. He is someone who has been made for the new heavens and the new earth. He has been given a new life, the principle of the life of Christ. Of the old creation we read, all things were made by him. And again, all things were made by him and for him. Not so the new creation, for the formula is now that of in him. Do you catch this? It is the creation of God with Christ its head, as the former was by Christ with Adam its head. What does this mean now? Simply this, that being in Christ means that one is a participant in the eschatological life of the restored and renewed heavens and earth even now. Big statement, big, big words. A participant in the eschatological life 
of the restored and renewed heavens and earth even now. Some way and somehow through the Messiah, God's future for the world where peace, justice, life, and joy reigns has come forward and burst forth in the present time. This is not a spiritualization of eschatology. Rather, understanding the radicalism of New Testament thought, it is grasping that the apostles believed that this time of literal, cosmic, physical, eschatological fulfillment, the full restoration of heaven and earth, though yet remaining future, has nevertheless dawned in the now. Those who are in Christ already taste this restoration. By union through faith with Christ, we not only inherit Christ's legal vindication, and this is where most of us stop. We not only inherit Christ's legal vindication before the throne, we also become so vitally connected to him by the mysterious work of the Spirit that his very life becomes the source of the transformation of our own lives. We live because he lives. We feed on Christ through word and sacrament as the powers of this age to come break in on this present evil age. Man, that is so good. It's so rich. It's so full of truth. It's so life-changing if we can grasp the truth of these words. New creation life. Through faith in Christ, we have become a new creation. We are a new humanity on the earth. We've said that again and again and again. A new humanity in the midst of fallen humanity. That's why there has to be distinction. That's why we are called to live lives that are holy, that are set apart, that are different than everybody else lives. Young men and women, that's why you have to make choices that are going to allow you to live your life for Christ in spite of what everyone else is saying and doing. And it will not be easy, but it is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Distinctiveness, not strangeness, but holiness that makes us distinct. The new humanity restores the image of God in man. Colossians 3.10 Turn there with me, Colossians 3.10. If you start in verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices. That's the identity. We had an identity in Adam. We have put that off. We choose in faith to put that off. And now we put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The reason the word renewed is used here is because it is a process. Though the identity is new, we still live in this fallen body and we are in process of being healed. But my identity as, is that as, as new humanity on the earth. I love and I love I loved that Mickey prayed this today in the prayer room. I love what God loves. My heart is given to what is God's. 
Yes, I fall short. But if you ask me in the depths of my heart, I love the things of God most of all, as do all of you. Because we are a new creation. Because we have a new heart. Because he took that heart of flesh, that heart that was hard, that heart of, of stone, and he gave us now a heart that is soft and pliable. Christians who are this new humanity in Christ are created in righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24 says, Christians who are the new humanity are created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. So the kingdom of God is the reign of God through this new creation, people. And so there is forgiveness now. There is reconciliation. There is freedom. There is healing. There is life that is not of this world that Matt preached on last Sunday. There is a new value system. There is a new ethic. There is a lifestyle that is otherworldly. These are all characteristics of this new humanity living its life out on the earth. And Hebrews teaches us that all that is of the old creation in order will pass away. And all that will remain is what is of God. That the new humanity, the new creation of God. And we know that this new creation will be finally fully realized at the return of Christ. When these frail bodies will be raised to glory. When the dead, those in dead in Christ will be raised to glory. Never ever again to be weak, but a new body. A body that is commensurate with a new earth. What an incredible thing. So Nehemiah has come as a foreshadowing of an apostolic man in the New Testament to do some very needed repair work on the walls of a city where the people of God dwelt. They had been burned and broken down. And as we read in chapter 1, they had brought great shame Shame to the people of God. Brothers and sisters, broken lives in the church, if unmended, if unhealed, if undealt with, are a thing of shame in this sense. Not of the person, but of the church. The church should be a healing place. Amen? The church should be a place where broken people come and get well. Not perfect. Not perfect. But substantial healing, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, there is substantial healing in Christ in this life. Not always when we want it, not always how we want it, but God is at work. And so as we go through the book of Nehemiah, keep in mind this New Testament thinking that we're not just reading the story of history of events that happened thousands of years ago, but we're looking at the foreshadowing of God's desire for the church to be built and of personally human lives to be built, of the breaches in your life and in my life to be repaired and healed where the enemy has gained access. I pray that by the time we end this series that the breaches in your and my life will be substantially healed and closed. 
And we might need some times of prayer. It might be times in the hub groups, in the home groups, where we are very, very honest and we share openly. Hey, these are the areas of my life that I've identified as vulnerabilities. Please pray for me. That kind of prayer is powerful. Very vulnerable, very honest, powerful prayer where we pray with faith knowing that it's God's will to heal and God's desire to restore us. This is the way of God. And that's what Nehemiah is representing in many ways. Yes, it was the city, but this man is a man after the heart of God, just like Ezra was, sent by God, not by Artaxerxes, sent by God to do a work that only God could do. And Nehemiah was a means of it happening. Amen.